From photo festivals to art spaces and hospital waiting rooms to the amazing work of Ben Quilty, the podcast this month almost makes it all the way across the entire country as we head to the Art Gallery of South Australia to explore the relationship between curator and artist. A local sexual health clinic has a most unique art gallery in the waiting room. And the Head On Photo Festival celebrates a milestone this year, but the journey hasn't been without its challenges. Hello, I'm Tim Stackpole, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again. Okay, so the former Galaxy TV prize wheel here in the podcast studio is still without a sponsor. It's becoming a bit of a theme this year. So nonetheless, with my trusty whiteboard marker, I'll divide the wheel into three parts again. First of all, the head-on photo festival, the waiting room project, and Ben Quilty's exhibition at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And curator Lisa Slade will talk to us about that. So, where to first? The wheel will decide our fate. And it's landed on the Head-On Photo Festival, which is on from the 4th to the 19th of May this year. It's the 10th year, in fact. Longevity pretty much due to the festival's director, Moshe Rosenzweig. Over the past decade, Head-On has presented the work of over 5,000 photographers. And last year, the festival attracted record attendances to experience 147 exhibitions and more than 1,000 artists at 98 venues and galleries. And Moshe joins us now on the podcast via Skype. Thanks so much for taking the time during what is, I reckon, a very busy time for you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ten years, that's pretty incredible. Did you always imagine it was going to be this successful? The short answer is no. The longer answer is we knew that we were going to grow it uh, over years. Mm. From the very first year, we had, I don't know, 400 people came out of nowhere. Yeah. So we knew that it was something that would be successful, but I, I never imagined it would be, you know, to the, you know, the size and the extent that it is now. Now, you were a photographer yourself. You still are, I'm, I'm guessing. But did you set up the whole exhibition competition foundation in order to support other photographers? Was that, was that how it all started? Partly, yes. So it, basically the way it started was, I don't know if you remember, there used to be the photo, what, what was called the Photographic Archibald mm-hmm. at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And the way it started, I did not get in the first year, which was 2003. And then in 2004, I didn't get in again. And we got together a whole lot of rejects. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, each one brought the picture and we put it on the wall. There were about 10, maybe 15 of us. And there was some phenomenal work. Mm. And I thought this is amazing, you know. If if we don't, if if you don't get into this uh, competition, this stuff is going back into draw. No one is going to see it ever again. Yeah, because they had the rule that it has to be shot in the last twelve months. Mm. So, you know, I thought, okay, we'll do it ourselves. Yeah. Ever since then, it's grown into into something even larger and more diverse. Exactly. So, so really, the, the the answer is yes. It was in a way to support the photographers and in a way to support the public as well. Because I don't know if you remember the time, two thousand and four. There were not many galleries showing photography. No, like most galleries didn't show photography, so people couldn't couldn't show the work and people couldn't see work. And I'm I'm very interested in photography. I, I think it's it's a fantastic medium, 
And, you know, that was the only way to get it going was actually to, to do something about it. Over the last 10 years, and anyone who organises exhibitions, festivals or events knows that there are times when it gets tough. Was there any point over the last 10 years where perhaps head-on may not have gone ahead? Every year. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's tough is, is, is an understatement. It's, you know, people... People talk to me. I, I don't know any other way of doing things. I'm I'm like a you know like a dog with a with a bone type mm. thing. Mm. You know, I got it. I will not let go. But you know, it's people comment about about the difficulties. It's 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 really tough. It's you know at the beginning we started. We used to get comments from photographers. Oh, you're making money. You lucky you. You know, and all the rest of it. You know, yeah. little did they know that we put tons of money ourselves and and time and whatever of course and then and then we had to deal with the galleries you know they kind of want to sort of guard their turf and saying Mm. oh well it's my photographer or we do this and you know how can you have another gallery competing with me and Mm. you know sort of thing so that was the galleries then we had to deal with the funding bodies and they've got it's it's a big story and then you know you deal with politicians and and each year was kind of a bit of a and another layer of complexity to the sort of sure. the you know challenges that we we we've been dealing with but you know we kind of travel through and you know we've got lots of photographers on on board and very supportive we've got lots of you know volunteers that have to put it together we've got lots of galleries that appreciate what we do and they know that it it helps them to promote their artists and the venue and whatever basically everyone is on board now and everyone is very supportive and uh, it makes life a little bit just tiny little bit easier although the money is still not there and this is always challenging now the other thing is which is quite complex is that the whole exhibition runs across so many different galleries not just in sydney but i understand extending all the way up to newcastle as well yeah we've got this year we've got newcastle and bigger but the main activity is really around Paddington area and some around the Sydney CBD. Mm-hmm. So this is really the, the kind of the main areas. When we started, we had, you know, over 100 galleries or the second year. The first year was sort of a bit more modest. But the second year onwards was very, very large. And people would complain that it was too large. They can't get mm-hmm. the places. They don't know what to see and all the rest of it. So we sort of concentrated it in in Paddington, mainly in Paddington. So we've got the Paddington Town Hall, we've got 13, 14 shows in in one space. We've got the Paddington Water Reservoir across the road with another 10 or so, 12 shows. You know, some commercial galleries around there, uh, Juniper Hall across the road. It's a lot more manageable for people, for for the visitors. And for us, it's a little bit easier because it's, you know, you put 12 shows in one place, you don't have to worry so much about coordinating as many things as we still have to deal with 12 photographers or 12 groups of photographers and, you know, hanging and printing and, you know, all the rest of it that goes with it. But but it's a little bit easier because it's all in one place. Yeah. I'm also reading here about how the festival has toured America, China, India, Europe, New Zealand. How do you manage that as well? Well, we are part of a, a group called the Asia Pacific Photo Forum, which is a very loose association of, I think, about 13, four, maybe 14 organizations or festivals in the Asia Pacific sort of area. And then, you know, you get to meet people and, you know, directors and 
you know, artists and whatever, mm. curators from other festivals and, and you form relationships and, and you see some amazing work there and they see the work that we have here and you just end up swapping material in a way. We try to make it the least sort of demanding exercise but it's always, you know, uh, you know, it takes a lot of time and energy. But the rewards, you know, it's very rewarding. It's 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 beautiful to take an artist from Australia and and show them in in China, for example. This is the festival. I think they yeah. they get something like two hundred thousand visitors there. It's like there's a major festivals. The one in New York gets seventy thousand people, and uh, over a weekend or two weekends they run it. I think so. There are major places with major players and, and a lot of people get uh, a lot of publicity out of it, coverage and, and boost to their career as a result. So it's, it's, it's well worth the effort that goes into it. You spoke about funding before. Mm-hmm. In terms of funding for the arts and photography in particular, the opportunities are diminishing, do you think, for artists and photographers, not just in Sydney, but maybe even worldwide? Funding is, is, is a big issue. The, the model... You know, there's the European model, which is, to be crude, I'm an artist, I'm a superstar, you have to support me, and yeah. and whatever goes with it. So there's a lot more money, public funding, as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American model is a lot more like, I'm a great artist, and I can make money for you or for myself, so you should support me or you should have my show. So that goes to commercial galleries or, or sponsors, commercial sponsors. And then there's the sort of the hybrid in between, which is Australia, which is trying to basically make it work. So some of it is public and some of it is private and some of it is, you know, the artists themselves chip in and, and, and make an effort to make it happen. So it's sort of a combination of. But the opportunities are, it's a bit more difficult, especially with photography, because galleries, there's so much on offer now, so it becomes a lot more difficult to compete. That's one uh-huh. issue. The so this is on the on if you want the commercial level. On the government level, it's it's I don't know if it's shrinking or just basically not growing. So there's a lot of demand on on the funding bodies to to help out. And the commercial sponsors are especially in the photography environment are a lot more reluctant to put money into these sort of activities because they've got less money to spend. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is challenging. It's very challenging. But the bit that I, I have to say here, that photography is a special area of difficulty because within the funding organizations in Australia, the public funding, photography generally is not considered very much of an art form. It falls under visual arts. This is the best case scenario, which receive limited amount of funding and photography gets tiny fraction of it. But there are other other areas there that that it makes it even more difficult because it's being perceived as community art or some craft rather than than fine art. So it's very limited which projects get the, the support. And this is something that we've been trying to sort of change um, with some limited uh, success and we're still working on it, trying to basically bring photography to a position that it's considered as an art form in its own right and not 
sort of like the the cousin, you know, the distant cousin of of visual arts. Um, and and I must say, it's mainly in Australia. I talk to people overseas, and it's different over there. Photography is yeah. is much more appreciated and supported. I'm I'm not sure that there's much more that you can do. I mean, you have educational programs and other activities around the festival. Mm. I mean, can you see that there's more you need to do in order to improve that profile of photography in Australia to change that perception? Well, hopefully, you know, within time it will change. It's 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 you know we're chipping away bit by bit. I hope that I'm not banging my head against the wall, and mm. and the only mm. thing that happens is my my head cracks rather than the wall. <laughs> so, but that's I suppose what I took on myself to do, and and yeah. up until now we managed to get a lot more galleries to show photography. We've got schools coming to the festival now as part of their. Uh, sort of excursion program. You know, we've got a lot more public, general public coming and saying, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is better yeah. than, I won't say who, but it's better than another event that is very yeah. well promoted. And and I, we wish, you know, you were, you know, more visible as well, sort of stuff. So we're, we're chipping away. We've got fantastic team and, and a lot of support in the sort of general community. So hopefully things will change uh, over time. Well, Moshe, I can only wish you all the very best. You've done a terrific job over the last 10 years. Just let us know when your festival uh, opens. Um, the festival opening is the 3rd of May, Friday night. It will be at the UNSW Art and Design in Paddington, the campus in Paddington. Mm-hmm. And the, especially the first weekend has a lot of other activities, so lots of openings and get-togethers and pub talks and whatever, and a full-on seminar day on Sunday the 5th, which we invite a whole lot of people from overseas and local artists and curators and a whole lot of people to kind of get together and and have a discussion about a whole lot of issues and, and photography as a whole. Moshe, I know you're very busy and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That's Moshe Rosenzweig there with an exciting program coming up, plenty of galleries taking part, and for all the details, head to www.headon.com.au. So once again, time for the prize wheel. This time, a choice between The Waiting Room Project or Ben Quilty's exhibition in South Australia. Let's give it a spin. And we've landed on The Waiting Room Project, which kind of fits the theme of perhaps those more unusual gallery spaces that we've been covering this year on the podcast. It's a gallery located in a hospital waiting room, and in fact, it's the waiting room at the Sydney Sexual Health Clinic. Now, the curator there is Upasana Papadopoulos, and I was lucky enough to have a face-to-face with Upasana, where I asked her how the concept of a gallery in the waiting room of a sexual health clinic came about. There are a lot of people that go through the Sydney Sexual Health Centre and there's a lot of people that go there routinely um, for different reasons, for vaccinations or checkups. Um, so it's a, it's a community in itself. Um, a lot of the staff that are there have been there for quite a while, are quite dedicated, quite passionate, even quite political. And they want people that are in that waiting room to feel engaged and to have good contemporary art to relate to. They did specify contemporary art, which was impressive to me. They're not after decorating the walls. They want to encourage what contemporary art can do, and that is contemporary discussions, 
new thoughts, new ways of thinking. There's a very broad range of people sitting in that waiting room. Do you think there's a bit of a stigma attached to any sort of sexual health clinic and perhaps they're trying to break that down a bit? I believe so. The people that actually engaged me are from the um, health education department of the Sydney Sexual Health Centre. And uh, in a previous career of mine, that, that was an interest and area that I was working in as well. So yes, absolutely. So moving on to the type of art we can expect on the walls, what, what do we see? My interest as a curator is in um, emerging early career artists um, and particularly artists that resonate with the idea of site specificity in the space. They're not after a clean white space, um, a white cube to exhibit in. I, When I interview people or speak to people about the space, I'm very interested in how they relate to the idea of speaking to that audience and speaking to that space. It's beautifully imperfect. There are a lot of limitations on how things can be hung in there. I'm always interested in people that can imagine that that's all of us sitting in that waiting room at some stage in our lives. And and ones that respond to the themes that come up, either the, you know, Australia really did once upon a time lead the way in sexual health. When, when AIDS was going crazy in the 80s and 90s, Australia was really looking at needle exchange and, and condom availability and talking freely on the media about what was going on and how it was actually spread. I'm interested in people that can connect to that history, people that are interested in themes of waiting or emptiness or fear or the stigma that you mentioned before, um, in any way. So not in, not in a literal way, but in in any way have an understanding that who their audience is in that space. So who have we seen hanging there so far, and who's coming up? The very first person that we had exhibiting in the space was last November. That was Jacqueline McLeish, who was fresh back from um, a residency in Japan. So it was great to have her fresh from that experience. Um, A lot of the paintings that she had were reflecting on on her time there, which which was great, just giving people that were in the space an opportunity to kind of watch her reflections on um, where she was as an artist. After that, in December, we had uh, Rachel Helmore and Jeremy Smith, both who used drawings or or did for that exhibition. And after that, we also had Annie Linklater and um, Amelia Skelton, who approached me. They, They had some really interesting work, collage and drawings, going on in the space. Um, So that was January this year. February, we had Paula McCambridge, who had a beautiful interpretation. She does installation work using found materials that's usually like this sort of material that's usually used for padding in mattresses or under carpets or in couches. So she had a lovely theme looking at... um, what is under the surface, what we hide, what we're ashamed of. And she had a lot of fun in the space. And uh, the March exhibition is Liam Benson, whose work has recently been in um, the Just Not Australian exhibition at Art Space. So we were really honoured to have him um, at a time that coincides with the Sydney Mardi Gras Festival. In April, we have Isla Vinwen, who usually paints very large-scale Works and she is really looking at the space and interpreting how she's going to change her practice to kind of fit the room, which is a really attractive idea to me that she's really responding to the place herself. Now, you as a curator, I understand this is only a fixed term role. If you give that up, will you give that up voluntarily or would you love to stay on for a while? 
They didn't actually put a date on it. I love the idea of a pop-up space, and I, I was the one that gave it the title, The Waiting Room Project. Um, quite inspired by a group of artists that I've met in Sydney. Susie Faiz is one of those artists who is really interested in in found spaces or spaces that aren't used traditionally to exhibit art. So I liked the idea of hitting the space and exploring my own curatorial practice, seeing the sort of relationships I could form with the artists for it, and then moving on to a new project and handing that over to someone else. And I've actually found the person that will be taking over from me somewhere in the middle of the year, who is um, Joel Humphreys, who is himself in his early years or early stages of becoming a curator. So the gallery will continue even if you move on? I think it's really important once you've started this process, there's a certain responsibility to make sure that there's a you know, continuance of art on the wall so the dialogue continues. The idea of having bare walls or, or art that isn't thoughtfully created for the space or thoughtfully exhibited for the space to me seems like a, a, an important responsibility. So Joel and I will start really working together now and um, hopefully he'll take over the process. Um, I had to actually be employed by the hospital. I'm a volunteer employee um, and I'm always in that medium space of ensuring that there's great art, um, great dynamic, thoughtful art on the walls. But at the same time, one of my eyes is always on what the hospital staff need, uh, what their responsibilities are to the people that are in that waiting room. I guess that the hospital area health service have been very happy with the results and the response. But how have the people in the space responded? I have only heard um, what's going on in there through the staff members, and they're really happy. There's also been some sales, which we weren't necessarily expecting, so that's, that's been an added bonus. But the, the word that I've heard is that they're extremely happy with the sort of artwork that we've had up. They, they were great. At the beginning, they said there is, no, there is no topic or no form of art that we won't consider for this space. So that was a nice freedom. But um, we've had some great feedback, and the, the staff tend to come to our openings as well. That's nice too. They're part of this community as well. And these exhibitions seem to be turning over every calendar month. Have I got that right? Yeah. As a rule, um, the installation takes place on the first Wednesday of every month, and the um, opening is on the first Friday, um, usually between 6.30 and 8. Um, March was different. The opening was on the 15th of March. Um, in April, we're aiming for April the 5th. Okay, so just in wrapping up then, can you tell us physically, first of all, remind us where we can actually see this art and also online, I guess there's a website too. There is. Probably the best way to connect to us is through the Facebook page, which is the Waiting Room Project Facebook page. Um, and there's a link to the website from there, which is also um, the Sydney Sexual Health Centre Waiting Room Project. The actual physical address is in the Nightingale building. It's the rear entrance to the Nightingale building on the third floor there. It's 8 Macquarie Street um, in Sydney CBD. Well, there's no doubt that you can't really complain about not being able to find exhibition space anywhere when you're turning waiting rooms at sexual health clinics into art galleries. It's an amazing progression of what you can do with art and where you can display it as well. And congratulations on the whole project. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you on the podcast. Upasana Papadopoulos there, the current curator of the Waiting Room Project at the Sydney Sexual Health Clinic, soon to hand the curatorial baton over to Joel Humphreys. And more info about that gallery can be found at www.waitingroomproject.net.
No need to spin the unsponsored prize wheel here in the studio because our final destination for this edition of the podcast is the Art Gallery of South Australia, where the Ben Quilty survey is underway. And reviews are very positive, not unexpectedly, actually. Quilty has a history of provocative work. He explores white male initiations of masculinity. His Rorschach-style pieces sometimes inadvertently hide the subject of the work. And of course, there is his Warzone work drawn from Ben's experience as the official artist deployed alongside Australian troops in Afghanistan, at the time described as being both defining and debilitating for him as an artist, along with portraits of Myron Sukumaran, one of the Bali Nine who was executed. Dr Lisa Slade, the Assistant Director of Artistic Programs at the AGSA, is the curator of the Quilty Exhibition, and here perhaps maybe a personal angle about the exhibition can be explored, that being the connection and collaboration between the curator and the artist. Now, given that the two of them have known each other for a considerable length of time prior to Lisa taking up her current role with the art gallery, and they have collaborated in the past. Lisa, first of all, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. Now, given that history that the two of you have I just mentioned, let me dive straight in and ask about whether you're able to step back enough and be objective in this case with this exhibition. Was that a challenge? Probably, but I gave up the idea of objectivity a long time ago. (laughs) I'm an anthropologist first, an art historian second. But, you know, I don't really believe in objectivity. A curatorial task is one that is absolutely about criticality, critical thinking, but it's also about making meaning and you have to bring your subjectivity to bed. wouldn't make sense for, for Ben Quilty, who is such an impassioned soul, to mm. have somebody kind of picking through it in a way that was kind of dispassionate, I don't think. Yeah, and considering how passionate, obviously, you both are, Was there a meeting of minds all the way through the curatorial process or was there conflict between the two of you? There wasn't any conflict because he left me pretty much left me to, because we do know each other so well, he has trust and faith and he also knows, which I don't think all artists do, but he knows that his selection of his work is not necessarily going to be the best selection, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of artists probably think they should just curate their own shows because they know where the good work is. But Ben's never been one of those. Ben's all too curious about other people. And I'm curious about other people. So exhibitions are always kind of crucibles of experimentation where you go, "Mm, how do people respond to this? One of the things I'm just flabbergasted by already in the show is that people, some people cannot see the Rorschachs. They can't see the imagery in the Rorschachs. Right. And I, I didn't really know that because I can. It's one of the, it's like, you know, it's like those magic eye puzzles, really. <laughs> Once you can see it, you can't not see it. Just describe this work sure. for people that aren't familiar with it. Well, there are a couple of works, and they're works where Ben has created on the one side of the canvas an image. He's painted an image, and then he takes a, a pristine surface, another canvas, and presses it into that surface. Mm-hmm. So it creates an imprint, a mirror of that particular work. And then he opens them back up and exhibits them side by side. So you end up with this ink blot, and hence the name Rorschach, because they're named after Herman Rorschach, but you end up with this kind of ink blot effect. But that act of printing, as you can imagine, obscures the figuration somewhat. Yeah. But what's become obvious to me now is that it, it has obscured the figuration to an extent that some people cannot read the imagery. 
The most famous example in, well, the most recurring example in Ben's show is the work that's called Bedford Downs Rorschach, where he's taken the image of a skull and printed it. But what's becoming apparent now, and you, you don't know these things until you put works into the public domain, is that very few people, like maybe 5%, can actually see the skull. Right. Now, that is fascinating. <laughs> I think that is absolutely fascinating because, it, I mean, on the one level, I could get deep and meaningful and say that very few people can see that story, can see that history, and it's a story, it's a massacre painting, so it has a very dark history. But there's also, Ben said to me when we first installed the work, he said, he knew this more than I knew this, right. and he said, not a lot of people can see this painting, but he said when they take a photograph of it with their iPhones, all of a sudden they can see it. Uh-huh. And he's correct. The iPhone flattens out things, as you well know. The iPhone is the 21st century anamorphic tool. I mean, it creates a resolution and enables things to resolve into into kind of being, I suppose, mm. which is an interesting metaphor for technology in our lives at this point in time. But when you do take a photograph of it, you actually can see the double skull. So we've had some great, really fantastic experiences with school groups and members of the public and our regular guided tours where we ask them to hold their phones up to the painting and all of a sudden they can see the image. Now, here's a learning experience for you. So how is that going to change your perception when you go forward and curate shows in the future, understanding that perhaps Mm. there are members of the public who aren't actually going to see, and you know now there are members of the public who aren't actually going to see what the artist is trying to communicate? I'd be more explicit in my interpretive text, perhaps, around the work. I'd be more provocative. Uh-huh. It wouldn't. It would not in any way deter me from including those works. Probably the opposite, because I think the idea that you can see something that you didn't see before is an exciting concept. Yeah, and I think it would be for Quilty too. So he, back to your thing about you know how did we decide? He pretty much left me to it. We, I don't mean that in that he didn't know what I was selecting, but he had faith that I was going to make the right selection. We tic-tacked about the early works, you know, how many of those works, and also about Afghanistan. He wanted to make the right selection. The tour of his After Afghanistan paintings was enormously successful and relatively recent, and I didn't want to go over old ground. You know, whilst you need hooks for the audience to hang their understanding of the artist on, you don't want to just mount the same show. You don't want to say the same thing. That would be the most boring thing for artists and curator and audience, of course. So... We talked a little bit, I mean, probably the most interesting conversation was about the Margaret Ollie painting. He really didn't want to include that painting because it just felt like everybody had seen it. Mm. And I just persisted, when you know somebody well enough, you can do that. And I I just said, it has to be in the show. It's such an important work. And whilst you think everybody knows it, they know it through reproduction. They know it through its story. It's become one of the, probably the most iconic portraits already in Australian painting, even though it's only, what, about eight years old. Yeah. But people need to see your work in the flesh because I think that work has been big through its reproduction and through its broad popularity. That that doesn't equate to an exhibition experience of the painting. They're not one and the same thing. No, that's right. And people would have an expectation to be able to see it. If they're going to see a Ben Quilty exhibition, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, that He's Margaret Ollie painting yeah. that he did. Yep. Uh, and people yep. would expect that's to see that. It's like going to see a Bruce Willis movie without Bruce Willis in it. Exactly. They have an expectation. <laughs> that's very good. I like that. But, you know, when they then get into it, they go, oh, hang on. Look how little paint he's used to conjure the likeness of, of Margaret Ollie. Isn't that uncanny? Mm. Like they learn something new. It's not – a familiar work doesn't mean you don't learn anything new. I suppose that's the curatorial lesson in it, you know? 
Okay. Now, just quickly, is there anything not in the exhibition that you wished was going to be there? Oh, probably lots of things, but oh, okay. there wasn't anything I couldn't get. Okay. Probably the critical <laughs> painting was the, he only did two portraits of Murray and Sukumaran. Yeah. And I didn't want to overplay that card for the reason that he didn't do much work of Murray. Murray was not a muse. Murray was a mentee. Mm. So I, I, was, I wanted to be cautious and responsible with that, but I also knew I needed it. So getting that painting was really critical because there are only two, and I wanted a particular one of the two, and that's the, the work that's in the show. So getting that was critical, but that's probably about it because the big raw sharks are the story, I think, of mm-hmm. the show. I mean, I say I think because I don't think it's up to me, it's up to the audience, but the, the recurrence of those major, major monumental works is important, I think, because otherwise you don't ever get to see those assembled together. And then the play between those major raw sharks, and there are a few I couldn't fit in, so there are a few I had to forego. There's a fantastic Cuda Beach painting, for instance, and there were works I couldn't have due to space, but the only work that was really, as I said, the only kind of moment of have we got that work, have we got that work, was really around that Myron Sukumaran portrait, because how do you tell that story without him? Yeah, and do you have a favourite piece? Uh, Erin Erinji, which is the most recent work, which is the raw shark that's still wet in the show because it's South Australian. <laughs> South Australian and it comes out of the kind of, about five years ago, Ben and I travelled up to, we were actually in the NT, but he met a whole lot of artists, animal artists from the APY land through a project um, I was working on at the time. And he now has a very rich relationship with those artists in the art centre and been really responsible for championing Anangal art and landscape, kind of revision of landscape through Aboriginal art. So I've, I, and obviously living in South Australia and working in South Australia, I'm very close to those artists. We work a lot with those artists with programming we do. So mm. to me, it feels like that painting is hanging in the right space, really, to be honest. And right. it's kind of you know, it's at home, I suppose. And it's also the most recent work, so it's exciting. You can literally smell it in the room. The minute you walk in the room, you can smell that painting. Lovely. I just have to let you know one story. I was at the MCA in Sydney last week, and I met an American couple who were travelling around New Zealand and Australia doing all the art galleries, and they particularly picked the Ben Quilty exhibition of yours in South Australia as being one of the most amazing things they've ever seen on the trip. They're travelling for four months, and they just loved it. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, that's just unbelievable to hear, to be honest. And I must say, the public response, you know, we've had, in the first week, we had 11,000 people through the show. Mm. And I've got visitors, I've got people going, oh, I didn't really know much about him. A lot of people knew, know of Ben. He's the most recognisable artist, arguably, at this point in time in Australia. But they didn't necessarily know his work. Yeah. And I, as a curator, that's so important. You know, the why do a Ben Cookie show? Why do a Ben Cookie show? Because people don't know his work. I mean, it's as simple <laughs> as that for me. People might know the man. They might know what he stands for. They might know that he did this and he did that and he went here and he did this. But they, it doesn't mean that they know or have experienced his work. And what you've just said is fantastic. Thank yeah. you so much. And you've done a, a great job putting it together. From what I've heard anyway, and I'll get over to see it before it closes. Great. The other thing is we have to mention that it is a touring show. Oh, absolutely. And that's a, that's very exciting. I mean, you know, John McDonald points out that it's a rare thing for exhibitions to tour these days to state galleries. And he's right. There's been a culture of state galleries setting up a kind of co- a competitive culture around exhibition development. But this has been a hugely collaborative affair. And I've worked very closely with my colleagues at both the Queensland Art Gallery and the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and they're both taking the exhibition. Hmm. So it goes from here, it goes to Brisbane, 
in Brisbane, other stories will be told. The works will be the same, but other narratives will be brought to bear. There's a great painting of Ben's, which is called Albert, which is the it riffs on the William Dargie portrait from the 1950s of Albert Namajira. That painting of Ben's will be in the exhibition in Brisbane, as it is here. But Brisbane actually also own the original, the Dargie, which is on display. Moreover, they own uh, a recent work by Vincent Namajira, the great-grandson of Albert Namajira, mm-hmm. where he actually puts himself in that portrait in conversation with his great-grandfather. Lovely. So all of these stories, that's what I love about context and place and audience. It brings incredible layers of um, complexity and brings some fantastic nuances to the exhibition experience. So I'm hoping that you could see the exhibition here, Queensland, and the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and not in any way feel as though you've seen the same show three times. Lisa, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Tim. And as Lisa said, that Quilty Show will travel. It's on at the Art Gallery of South Australia at the moment until the 2nd of June, then heads to the Queensland Art Gallery, the Gallery of Modern Art there, from the 29th of June until the 13th of October this year, and then finally heads to the Art Gallery of New South Wales from the 9th of November through to the 2nd of February 2020. And please check the respective websites for details. That's the podcast for now. Just quickly to other parts of the country, the 11 Artists in Exchange Value and International Practices explore not only the relationship between artist and subject, but also the potential of image making itself. That's at the Queensland University of Technology Art Museum until the 28th of April. The She Exhibition, featuring works by emerging female artists, is an opportunity to celebrate the talents of those artists and give them a launching pad as they embark on their careers after study. That She Exhibition has been held at the Walker Street Gallery and Art Centre in Dandenong for the past 17 years, the last three years focusing on graduate artists. That continues on from now through until the 13th of April. Check the gallery's websites for details, and if you are visiting from interstate, there's always something compelling underway at galleries around the country, so make sure to check online while travelling to uncover a few surprises away from the regular tourist haunts. That is the podcast for now. Thanks for downloading. Be sure to subscribe and share so you never miss an episode, and we'll always keep updating inside the gallery's Facebook and Instagram pages with exhibitions and other stuff that we love. I'm Tim Stackpole, and of course, as always, reminding you that when you're in the gallery... Please remove your backpack, okay? Bye-bye for now.